Well, as I said last time, we're going to talk about um, the rise of Rome. As the question has come up before sometimes, like when did the Roman Catholic Church start? And that's, as most things in history are, that's a complicated question. <laughs> you know, it's complex. Um, but that's what we're going to try and address today. Obviously, the Roman Church was there from the very beginning. The Roman Church was most likely founded um, because throughout the New Testament, we never read of the founding of the Roman Church. We never read of a time when there was not a Roman Church. So very, very likely the Roman Church was founded by um, Jewish convert- converts who were there at Pentecost for the feast and then went back to Rome and started the church. Um, that's almost certainly the way that church, as well as many other churches, started. Um, because remember, there were, um, you know, that was a great example of, of, of God as a, as a broadcaster, as a sower of seed. You know, he spread that seed early on all through the 5,000 converts there on the day of Pentecost. And none of them were from Jerusalem, <laughs> or not many of them. They were, they were there for the feast. So they were from all over the ancient world. And, every, and everywhere they went back, God used those men and women to start churches. And Rome would have been one of them. But let's talk about uh, uh, the, first, the first part of this we want to talk about is pre-Constantinian views of Peter and Rome. So how did the church think about Peter? Because, of course, the role of the apostle Peter is vital to this whole question. The dogma of the Roman Catholic Church today is that, the, uh, uh, that uh, Peter was the chief apostle, um, he was the leader of the apostles, um, and he was the, um, I forget if they say he was the founder, certainly he was the, he was the main pastor at the Church of Rome and died at Rome. Um, and, um, and, and that his authority, that he was made the chief apostle by Jesus and thus had authority over all the other apostles, that, that even that doesn't do enough to support Rome's claim. The next part of it is, is that that authority was inherited by his successors to the bishopric of Rome. So that's the big question. How did the early church think about that? Again, if you, if you ask the Roman Catholics, you know, when all this happened, well, they would say it's always been the case that the, the, the church always believed that um, that the Pope of the Bishop of Rome was the successor of Peter and was the authority of the church, um, but that is patently and obviously not the case um, and you can look at the statements of the of, of throughout the early church to support that, including things said in the Bible itself. However, there was widespread agreement in the early church that peter was the was the um, leader of the disciples, that he, was the, that he had a preeminence among the disciples for a number of reasons. In the biblical witness, in the New Testament, any place you have a list of disciples, Peter's always listed first. Peter is often in the Gospels in a place of speaking on behalf of the disciples as a whole. Peter was the first of the disciples to confess that Jesus was the Christ. And that incident was especially important to um, Roman theology, Roman Catholic theology, so we're going to talk about that a little later, probably next week. Um, but Peter was the first to see the, the resurrected Christ. Peter preached the first Christian sermon. Um, so there is a lot of biblical evidence, and the early church was pretty well agreed that Peter was the chief of the apostles, kind of the preeminent leader of the apostles. 
But they did not see that as authority. It was more of a, 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 a leadership of, of uh, a first among equals kind of thing, or a, um, he was just kind of the prominent one. It didn't mean he had authority over the others or could tell the others what to do or govern them or anything like that. And there's lots of different... You take, for example, the fact that um, you remember when, um, um, when they had to pick a successor for Judas in Acts chapter 1. Peter didn't just appoint him, you know. They had a process, and they all looked and decided. They settled. They got down to two that they felt had all the qualifications, and it was clearly a group effort. And then they, they made the decision between the two by casting lots, um, which probably means voting. It probably means that they voted for the replacement to, to Judas. Um, in Acts chapter 15, in the Council of, uh, the Council of Jerusalem, when they were deciding on the, um, um, uh, whether the, the, the question of the Judaizer question, whether the Gentiles had to um, uh, abstain from meat offered to idols and to get circumcised and follow the dietary laws and things like that, that the Jews did, um, there was that big debate. Um, Peter, A, isn't leading the assembly. He's not presiding over the assembly. James, the pastor of the church of Jerusalem, is. Further, Peter, he does speak, and he speaks powerfully at the assembly, but he doesn't just get up and say, this is how it's going to be, he doesn't just dictate to everybody. No, he, he persuades. He gets up and he makes a, a powerful speech, uh, and, then, and then they, as a body, decide, and then it's James that actually announces, so this is the final decision of the council. But it's the, it's the, it's the elders and apostles together that make that they come to a decision. We're not told about the mechanism, if there was a vote there or how it was done or just by consensus, but it was the body as a whole and then James that announces the decision of the body. Um, Peter is not leading that body. Um, in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about rebuking Peter for an error that Peter made. Again, regarding that same Judaizing question. So, um, so, there is, so there is a primacy of Peter, a primacy of, of honor, um, but not a primacy of authority, not a primacy of government. Peter uh, uh, obviously and transparently did not rule the other apostles or the, or the churches. Um, now it's interesting that... The, the argument of Rome is that because Peter was, had the preeminence and Peter was at Rome, therefore that preeminence attached to Rome. However, the answer of the Eastern Church to that is that if it is the case that the preeminence of Peter attaches to the church where he was, we're actually not 100% sure he ever was at Rome. We don't actually know that. He might have been, but we're not sure. But what we are sure of is that he was the pastor at Antioch. So why doesn't Antioch get the preeminence if that's the case? Um, that's, the, that's the Eastern Orthodox Church's argument. If it's about where, where we know Peter was, we definitely know he was the, he was the pastor at Antioch for quite some time. So, so shouldn't that church get the preeminence instead? Uh, uh, just, just for future, uh, the, 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 the Eastern Church's argument was always that... Um, 
the preeminence, the, the preeminence that is, is assigned to Peter is shared by the apostles as a whole and then transfers to all of those churches which were founded by the apostles and ultimately their successors. Um, so it ultimately transfers to all the bishops and archbishops, of, uh, the patriarchs of the church, not to just one. Um, that would be the Eastern Orthodox argument. The Protestant argument is something entirely different that we'll talk about later on. However, the Church of Rome did have a lot of prominence in the early church. It was a prominent church. It was a big church. Um, there were, they were, um, and, and again, when we talk about these churches a lot of time, we talk about the Church of Rome. The Church of Rome in the days of, um, of um, Nero, for example, probably had 10,000 people in it, all right? So we talk about this as a church, but it almost functions more like a denomination. Um, they would the 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 this would this there was no place where Christians where ten thousand Christians could have all gathered in one place, right? They had multiple uh, gathering places, mostly in people's homes throughout the city, and then they had an authority structure that led up to the bishop, and the bishop kind of oversaw the whole thing, and then gradually those bishops would take over the oversight of even churches outside of the church. We'll talk about that whole process in a minute, but. Um, but the Church of Rome was very prominent. It was, a, it was a large church. It was the church that had suffered the most from persecution in the earth. They were the first one to suffer the organized brunt of Rome's hatred in the days of Nero. Um, um, and throughout, throughout the various persecutions, I mean, Rome was right there. <laughs> you know, Rome, the Church of Rome was in Rome. And so they always got the brunt of the persecution. They also were had the reputation of having the fewest number of retractors, the fewest number of people who uh, denied the faith under persecution. So they had a really good reputation. They were also the most orthodox of all the churches. They were kind of became the benchmark. Later on, when, the, um, when all of the various um, heresies, the struggles with orthodoxy, um, and even today, you know, we tend to look at um, particular teachers. Maybe it's John Calvin. Maybe it's R.C. Sproul. Maybe it's the denominational standards. You know, different things. You know, and everybody kind of has those sources that they kind of trust the most. For a lot of early Christians, that was Rome. You look to Rome for guidance. Uh, Irenaeus said in the in the um, the church father Arrhenius, this would have been the late 2nd century, around 170 or so. He said, everyone must agree with Rome. But by that, he didn't mean that Rome was infallible and Rome had the right to tell everyone else what to agree, what to believe. It just meant that Rome had the reputation as the most orthodox, most reliable, dependable church. So that everybody kind of looked to them. For especially in the Western Church, everybody kind of looked to them to to because remember this in the very early days um, they didn't have a lot of creeds and confessions they had they had they had some statements they had a few things but both the apostles and Nicene Creed would come much later um, uh, they 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 didn't even always have an agreed upon canon of scripture yet um, and so. And so where do you look? What's, and everybody's coming along 
saying they're the true under they're the right ones, they're the ones who really know what Jesus taught there. And you might have all sorts of things. You know, even today it's the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the, you know, who who knows who else who might say they really know what Jesus was really all about, and you and the church have messed it all up. Um, and so they needed an authority. They needed somewhere to look. And remember also that most of the people we're talking about were illiterate. And so to the degree they had access to the scriptures at all, they couldn't read them. And so, <coughs> excuse me, Rome gained a lot of authority and prestige that way. Just by being orthodox. By being a good church. They were a good church. A really good church. When, when Tertullian says everyone must agree with Rome, we know, though, that he did not mean by that that everyone had an obligation to obey Rome or do whatever Rome says. We know that because of something that happened in 180 AD that we referred to earlier. Um, do you remember the Quartodecimanian controversy, which was all about the right observance of Easter? And in 180 AD, um, Pope, uh, the Bishop Victor, who is the Bishop of the Church of Rome, I'll talk about the term Pope in a second, the Bishop of the, ter- the, the Church of Rome excommunicated a number of churches in Asia Minor for not agreeing with Rome and most of the rest of the church about the proper date of Easter. As I said at the time, the issue was about a lot more than just the date. The issue was more about authority. Who had the right to determine what the church did? Tertullian himself, the one who made the statement, we said, I'm sorry, not Tertullian, but Arrhenius, who said, made that statement earlier, but everyone must agree with Rome. Arrhenius himself rebuked Pope Victor for doing that and said that, that the bishop of Rome is not an emperor over the whole church. You can't tell everyone what to do. And the churches in Rome, the churches in um, Ant, uh, uh, Asia Minor that were excommunicated by Victor just ignored it. <laughs> they just didn't, they didn't pay any attention. They just said, you don't have any right to tell us that we are or not a church. We're not under your authority. And they just ignored it. So um, there were those early attempts um, on the part of the, uh, a part of the bishop to kind of throw their weight around a little bit. Um, but um, But it wasn't anything like what would come much later. This was, as I said, a gradual process. Let's talk about about church government a little bit and the episcopacy, the the system of bishops and how all that started. Even Roman Catholic scholars must admit, and they do, that the church did not initially have bishops. Um, The earliest records we know show that the church regarded the the term bishop and elder as synonymous, as it very much appears that the scriptures do. Um, Paul will, in some places, use the term um, elder, presbuteros, um, which literally means elder, an old man, um, uh, and speaks of a position of preeminence and respect and honor because of age and maturity. Um, sometime, and from which we get the, the term Presbyterian church government comes from that Greek term presbyteros, uh, which we translate today elder. Um, and then the term bishop, which comes from the term, and I don't know anything about the etymology of the word bishop, but I do know the Greek word is episkopos, which means an overseer. So those, 
So the early church said that just is showing kind of two different aspects of the work. The elders are, uh, you know, older, more experienced, more mature Christians, and um, and have an honor for their for their uh, their age and maturity, and they have the oversight of the church. Um, over time, though, especially under the pressures of persecution and of heresy, what do people do? When they feel under attack, when they feel in danger, they tend to look for a strong figure to kind of lead them all. That's a very normal human thing to do, not just in the church, but in pretty much the whole world. And so over time, there would, there would, there would generally be one of the elders of a church who had been the, old, he'd been the longest term elder, he'd had the most experience, um, like in our own church, it might be Greg, you know, because Greg's been an elder longer than the other two guys have been. The other two, you know, Glenn and Marty are relatively newer elders. Greg's been an elder for decades, you know, and so, and so they, would, they would kind of defer to that older, more experienced elder more and more. And then as time went on, he kind of gradually, and the other thing was elders were not appointed, they were voted on by the people. We have clear church records, uh, historical records to that effect. The, the elders were voted on by the people. But over time, as I said, that, that one, he would gain the title of bishop, which initially probably meant something like the president of the council. It just meant he was the one that kind of, like I'm the president of the South Central classes, right? That does not mean I have authority over the South Central classes. That just means that I, um, I organize the meeting and kind of conduct the meeting and make sure everything is done according to the, the rules of order. And, and, um, uh, but the body can overrule me and, and I don't have that kind of authority. I'm just a, I, it's an administrative function, right? And it seems like when they gave this one elder the term bishop, that that's what that meant. It meant that he had an administrative function that kind of oversaw the functioning of the council. Um, and that position of bishop. Then the other thing that would happen is that, again, these were very large churches, 10,000 believers in Rome. And so they had money and they had resources and they would plant other churches outside of Rome, right? In the surrounding neighborhood, in the surrounding area. And those daughter churches that had been planted would naturally look to the mother church for their advice and their support and how they were to do things and all of that. And as a result, that bishop, and then over time, those churches would get their own bishops. And then this bishop, he gradually became known as what was called an archbishop or a patriarch. Uh, archbishop generally, and in the largest and oldest, what they called the apostolic churches, they would be known as patriarchs. And patriarchs would, over time, this gradually developed, um, under, like I said, under the pressures of persecution, at the pressure of heresy, uh, people look to someone, even as an example, even like, again, I'm, I'm, I'm the president of the South Central Classes. We operate under Reformed Church government. The Constitution lays things out very clearly. And yet, even in our denomination, there's always, and I used to think, you know, sometimes when I was a young pastor, I would think, oh, this president or this executive committee, they're taking on too much power. They're, you know, doing things the Constitution doesn't, doesn't give them the right to do. They're kind of hoarding power to themselves. Now that I am the president, 
I actually understand what's going on, is that a lot of people want you to do that. <laughs> a lot of people actually pressure you. They said, tell us what to do here. Tell us if this is right or wrong. And I, t- I can't do that. I can tell you what my opinion is. I can give you my understanding of the Constitution, but it's only the classes that can actually make an authoritative ruling about that. I can just tell you what I think, but they don't want that. They want somebody to tell them what to do, you know? And so it's a natural human thing to centralize power. Look at, look at Israel. Israel had a distributed, um, localized government in the days of the judges. Government was all by the local elders, uh, the, the local elders of each clan and tribe. And only when there was national emergencies did God raise up a judge who had a temporary function of of organizing the defense of the nation and then he'd have a judicial function later. He would settle cases and so forth. But the vast majority of the government happened on local levels. Um, It was actually a marvelous example of republicanism. (laughs) And what did Israel do? They wanted a king. They wanted, a, they wanted a king, they wanted a strong man like the nations round about them to make them feel safe. So, this is what people do. <laughs> and churches are full of people. And that's what happened. So that over time, um, there developed more and more of a hierarchy. More and more of where you'd have what was called the, the metropolitan system or the episcopal system where you'd have a very large church and the, and, the, and the three chief churches, what they called the apostolic churches, churches where we were certain an apostle had been from the very beginning, or they thought, was Rome and, and, and Antioch and Alexandria. Those were the three biggest churches. And those churches were patriarchates. The, the, the bishop of each one of those was known as a patriarch. Under the patriarch were archbishops. Um, rulers of very large areas, that, and, then, and then below the archbishops would be a number of bishops that each would rule a smaller division. They self-consciously modeled the governing structure of the Roman Empire through the degree that they even adopted the term diocese. The term diocese, which you may be familiar with, that's, that is the territory that a particular bishop governs. That comes from the Roman Empire. That was their term for like a county, like a local uh, g- a governmental body was governmental unit was known as a diocese, and and the and the church adopted not only the name but they even adopted the maps. <laughs> the religious the, the 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 bishops eventually came to govern over the same administrative areas as the Roman Empire itself was divided into. And you might say, well, but I mean, even in like. The, South, the, the classes of the RCUS are almost entirely divided along state lines. It's convenient to do that, you know. So that's what they did then too. Um, so, as I said, that position grew in power and prestige. That was not universal though. It wasn't rigidly defined and established until after Constantine. Remember Constantine was when the empire, uh, first of all, ended the persecution of Christianity, and then more and more was on the way to Christianity becoming the official religion of Rome. 
the result of that, one of the results of that, like we talked about before, that, that merging of Christianity and, and the empire made the empire a lot more Christian, but it also made the church a lot more Roman, <laughs> you know, um, to its hurt. Um, there were good things about it, but there were a lot of bad things about it, too. That's when, first of all, that's when the whole temptation, the whole kind of drift towards hierarchy really took shape after Constantine. Bishops and archbishops, it all became a very rigidly defined system. It was defined by law by the Roman Empire. Um, there was no concept of the division between church and state in those days. Um, that was something that had to be developed through the blood, sweat, and tears of the church for centuries. And a lot of, a lot of that story is what we're going to tell in the future. Um, but, but being a bishop or an archbishop became a political position. It was you were appointed by the emperor. Um, now, the emperor generally operated with a lot of advice and consent by the other bishops. Um, but there was always this tension between whether, the, whether did the emperor have, and Constantine, Constantine's view, the, the, the Roman emperor had always been the head of the Roman state religion. And why should the switch to Christianity change that? He still view himself as the head of the Roman state religion, which was just now Christianity, right? And so um, that, that really became more structured in a lot of ways. One of the developments that happened was in 381, that was the Council of Constantinople, and it's no accident that this happened at Constantinople. Remember, Constantinople was the city that Constantine, it was originally called Byzantium, it was a very small kind of a fishing village in that area, but it occupied a really strategic point on the, on the Bosphorus Straits, which separate the Black Sea from the Mediterranean Sea, and also provide the bridge, the land bridge, between um, um, Asia Minor and, and, um, and Europe, Greece and, and the Baltics and so forth, right? So it was just a really central location. He established that city, Byzantium, renamed it Constantinople and built it into a tremendously magnificent city that um, uh, was the center of the Eastern Roman Empire for the next thousand years. Um, at the, remember, there were three patriarchates. There was, uh, these were seen as the, the the, the highest, highest ranking cities in the Christian world, and that was Rome and Antioch and Alexandria. Two more cities were added to that list at the Council of Constantinople. One of them, as you may guess, was Constantinople. You know? And they couldn't make any argument about it being an apostolic see or anything like that, but it was the emperor's city and he was the emperor and he was the one deciding. And so I just said, well, it's Constantinople. So of course it's going to be an apostolic see because it's Constantinople and it has to be. The other city that was added was Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was not a large, wasn't a large church. It wasn't even a terribly large city at the time. Remember after the destruction in 70 AD um, and again in 135 AD, Jews were not allowed to, per, were not permitted to go back to Jerusalem for a long time until the realm, reign of Julian the Apostate in um, the late, uh, the middle um, 5th century. And so it was not a large church. It was not a wealthy church. It was not a particularly influential church. But it was the first church. (laughs) And so out of respect and honor, it was kind of like an honorary patriarchal patriarchate. It was made a patriarchate. There was a bishop appointed. um, And it was um, elevated to that level. So now there were five. Five patriarchates. 
Rome, Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch in Asia Minor, Constantinople, and Jerusalem. Um, No, no, it's not. And the reason for that I was just going to mention is what happened later, there was, there was an intense conflict rivalry between Constantinople and Rome. And of course, the rivalry in a lot of ways was because the, after the emperor, empire was divided, um, Const, Constantine made Constantinople his capital in the eastern, and then Rome was the capital in the western church. So part of it was just a political rivalry that spilled over into the church. But another big part of it was the fact what happened later when the Muslims came. Muslims invaded the ancient world in uh, 632 AD, and we're going to talk about that whole story later. One of the things that happened, though, was that pretty quickly, the Muslims conquered Alexandria and Jerusalem and Antioch. And that took three of the patriarchates off the table, so that the only two remaining patriarchates was Constantinople and Rome. And then they had this long-standing rivalry. Rome saying, Rome's argument was they were the first, they, they had the primacy of, of Peter. Antioch was no longer a contender for the primacy of Peter because Antioch was occupied by Muslims now. Um, and therefore, Rome had authority over the whole church. Constantinople's position and the Eastern Orthodox's position has never been that Constantinople or the Patriarch of Constantinople ought to have authority over the whole church. They just said each patriarch is, is, has primacy over their own territory. Constantinople wasn't trying to tell Rome what to do. Rome, they just didn't want Rome to tell them what to do, um, was how that shaped out later on. And we'll talk about that a lot more uh, as well when we get to that point. Now, the other thing that happened in this period, in the, fourth, in the 5th century, leading up to 476 A.D., who remembers what happened in 476 A.D.? Anybody? Kind of a, an important date. Council. I'm quizzing. No, not a council. Fall of Rome. The last Roman emperor was deposed in 476 A.D. Um, so, leading up to this point, the empire was already in free fall for, for the last half of the... Uh, Rome was first sacked in 410 by the Visigoths. It was sacked again by the Vandals. Um, in 476, by that point, when the, um, um, when, the, when the barbarians came down at that point, who, who, was, who was it that... I don't remember. I think I'd remember a thing like that. Um, But he didn't, they didn't even bother sacking Rome at that point because Rome was a tiny little city by then, maybe 10,000 people living in it at that point. Um, the, the Roman government didn't even operate out of Rome anymore. The Roman emperor was a teenager, had no actual authority by then. Um, so they deposed, himself, they deposed him and did not announce himself the um, emperor of Rome because he didn't want to incur the ire and the opposition of the Eastern Roman Empire, which was still quite strong. Um, so he just declared himself the king of Italy. The Lombardians, maybe? Oh, yeah, the, Lombards. the Lombards, I think it was. But anyway, so he just, uh, he, just declared, um, he just declared himself the king of Italy and deposed the final Roman emperor. So the Roman Empire was in steep decline for the um, decades that went before that. And the church, in lots of ways, stepped into the gap. 
Um, the church, by that point, was exercising lots of civil functions already. Uh, it was not, during this period, the church started overseeing marriages, for example, that a church had to officiate in a marriage. Uh, churches oversaw, you know, would, would solemnize the um, contracts, for example. The church, they had a lot of civil functions that the, that the Roman Empire had kind of devolved to them. Because, again, by this point, the bishop, a bishop was as much a civil function as it was a religious function in that period of the Roman Empire. So the, so the, so the church in the West really just started to step into the lot of the vacuum that was caused by the collapse of the Roman Empire. And it was through this period the church started even adopting the language and the dress of the Roman Emperor. Um, the Bishop of Rome, he started referring to himself as Pontifex Maximus, which means the Great Father, which was the term that what had been used before for the, for the Roman Emperor. There was also the term Pope, um, the term pope comes from um, the Greek term papas, which just means papa. It's an endearing term for a father. Um, Rome was not the first church to use that term. Actually, there, there were lots of, that was a common term for bishops um, in, the, in the second and third century. There were, we, the, all of our records for the first use of that term are other churches than Rome. Um, Rome started using that term as well, and by about the 4th century, Rome started saying only Rome should use that term, that no other churches should call their, their bishops the Pope, that that term is properly applied only to the Bishop of Rome. All the term means, is it means, like I said, it means Papa, it means Father, um, which, which is a common term in lots of church bodies in various, for, for, their, for their clergy or their priests. Um, and bishops throughout this period started to gain great wealth because they collected portions of the taxes and uh, again they, 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 they served lots of civil functions and um, so yeah church and state became very closely intertwined during this period and, and one big part of the story for the next well even down to our own day but especially for the next thousand years is clarifying and disentangling the church from the state <laughs> um, that happened um, after Constantine up to the fall of the Roman Empire. Any questions or thoughts so far? If, if you ever, just feel free to throw your hand up. I don't always pause for breath, as you may have noticed, but um, I'm happy to take questions or thoughts, comments uh, at any point. Okay. Um, Leo the Great, Leo the First, 440 to 461. Even though we had stabs at Roman supremacy earlier, as we saw in the case of Pope Victor in, in 180 AD, it really is Leo who starts to really firmly advance the theory of Roman supremacy. Now, Leo was a wise man. By all appearances, a good Christian. He was wrong about this, <laughs> but um, did a lot of good in his time. We'll talk about that. But he was wise enough to know that even though he was advancing the theory, he didn't actually try to extend the authority of Rome over a lot of other churches. He just started advancing the, the theory of it, the idea. Um, 
He said that to disagree with the Pope of Rome was to be on the road to hell. He is the first one that really starts systematizing and formulating the idea that Peter, uh, of Peter's supremacy. That Peter wasn't just, didn't just have a primacy of honor, but had an actual primacy of authority. That the other apostles had to obey Peter. Um, this would be after, after Christ's resurrection, of course. Um, he also taught that he, was, that he was at Rome for a long time, that he died at Rome. And that's why, because he died at Rome, that's why the authority of Peter then passed on to Peter's successor, the next bishop of Rome. Um, and so he asserted, he asserted Rome's jurisdiction over the entire church. Said that Rome had authority over the entire church. He never tried to exercise the authority of Rome over the entire church, but he taught that Rome had authority over the other church. Um, now, like I said, um, there, there was never any hint of scandal about the papacy of, of Leo, which was not true of other popes even at that time. <laughs> you know, uh, he was a he was an, a man of impeccable morals. Uh, was renowned for feeding the poor. He did not get rich off the papacy like so many did. Um, he when the when the um, he saved he saved Rome twice um, from barbarian invasion. Once in the case of Attila the Hun, and Attila the Hun, uh, a name we all know to this day, right? Attila the Hun. Yeah, he was quite the deal. People thought he was the Antichrist. People thought it was the end of the world when Attila the Hun. Nobody could stop him, right? But um, Leo did. Leo went out, the legend is that Leo went out and had a sword fight with, with Attila the Hun. Now that is really unlikely that that actually happened. But what Leo clearly did do was to go out and strongly rebuke Attila for his violence and his pillaging ways. And he needed, you know, he's in danger of the judgment of God and he needed to turn back and stop it. And he did. <laughs> Attila was deeply impressed by this man of God and just turned around and went home. <laughs> you know, uh, Rome was unable to defend itself at that point. Rome was too weak. Uh, if Attila had come, he would have sacked the city. And, and, and um, Leo's strong rebukes sent him packing. He tried it again with the Vandals. The Vandals were not as pious as Attila the Hun. We get the term vandalism from the Vandals. We'll talk about the Vandals a little more later on. Uh, the Vandals would not agree to go. They, he did the same thing. He went out and rebuked them. And uh, they were going to sack the city anyway. But they did agree not to sack any churches or to kill anybody that was in a church. And so everybody crammed into the churches as best they could. Took as many of their belongings as they could, including all the pagans. All the pagans. There were still a lot of pagans in Rome at that time. And they all crammed into the churches as best as they could. And they still sacked the city and, and took a lot of valuables and a lot of wealth away. But the destruction and loss of life was not near what it would have been had it not been for what Leo did. Um, so he was a remarkable guy. Um, during the reign of Leo, the, the um, uh, events, and, and I'll, we'll kind of, I want to talk about a couple of different events here and then we'll quit. First of all, uh, a man, there was a man named Hilary of Arles. Um, he, was the, um, he was a metropolitan in Gaul. Uh, Gaul is what is now France. Um, so he was a metropolitan. That means that he had primacy. That means there was nobody above him. There was no authority above a metropolitan. Um, 
Hilary of Arles uh, had a dispute with one of his bishops, deposed this bishop, um, for good reason by all accounts, but that bishop appealed to Leo. Now, why should he get to appeal to Leo? Leo's not over. It would be like if I had a disagreement with the RCUS, went up to the RCUS Synod, the RCUS Synod disagreed with me, and so I turned around and appealed to the PCA. You know, what, that's kind of what this bishop did. Um, Hilary of Arles' position was be the, the bishop of Rome has no authority over Gaul, so why are, you know... But Leo sided with this bishop. And Leo, Leo this is another way that the, that, the, that the Roman church learned to imitate the ways of the empire. Um, this is one of the major ways that the Roman church extended their authority. Um, the empire would often be drawn into local civil wars. This is how the empire, the Roman empire, gained authority over Judea, for example. Um, Judea had kings. They had the Maccabean line of the, the Hasmonean dynasty that ruled over after the whole, the whole Maccabean revolt and all of that. Um, they had, but they had a civil war at a certain point. It was I, I two or three, decade, three or four decades before Christ. They had a civil war. One side of that civil war appealed to Rome to support them. And Rome said, and this was the losing side at the time, of course. And so Rome said, sure, we'd be glad to help you. And so they sent their troops in to help the one side of the civil war. And when the civil war was over and their preferred side of the civil war took over, well, the troops just didn't leave. <laughs> they just stayed, you know. Um, well, you know, America's done that a few times as well, all right? And so and, and that's, what, that's, how, that's, how the, that's how the British Empire extended most of their empire was just in that exact way. Um, and so this is what Rome did in a lot of cases. They'd find some, you know, this bishop who was mad at Hillary and, and, and that bishop had enough support of other bishops that enough of them said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to take, we're going to have Rome support us on this side. Rome had a lot of prestige even in Gaul. They didn't have armies, not yet, but they had prestige. And so they used that prestige to support that side against Hillary, who was the, who was the um, Metropolitan, and they ended up, because Hillary refused the authority of Rome, Leo deposed Hillary, and enough of the bishops supported him that it stuck. And so Hillary was deposed. Ironically, Hillary was, again, by all accounts, an impeccable man, a godly man, became a bitter opponent of the Roman, uh, the, uh, Roman authority, um, Years and years later, the Roman Catholic Church actually made Hillary a saint. <laughs> Rome did that a lot of times. They'd kind of co-opt their enemies. They're like, no, no, they were really, they weren't against us. They were for us all the time. <laughs> they, they got really good at doing that. But, um, uh, and so that was how, that story of Hillary of Arles was how Rome gained authority over Gaul. When Gaul used to be, used to have its own primacy. They did that in a lot of cases. That would be gradually how the prestige and primacy of the Roman church was used to extend that authority. Um, there was another case, a case of the, the case of Apiarius. Um, he was deposed by Bishop Urbanus of Sicca. Uh, he was a priest. He appealed to the Pope. Um, this was in North Africa. Apiarius was a wicked man. Everybody knew he was a wicked man. He got deposed for good reason. Uh, he, was, uh, he was corrupt, he took bribes, he was immoral, um, but he appealed to, he appealed to um, the Pope, and this was, 
This was earlier than Leo. This was in 418 under, under Bishop Zosimus, and then under 424 under Bishop Celestine. And in both of those cases, <coughs> both of those bishops sided in the case of Apiarius against the local bishop and tried to do the same thing. But in both of those cases, the local bishops ignored the ruling of the, of, of the Bishop of Rome and, and had enough support from their local bishops that the, the Bishop of Rome did not prevail. Um, and so that's a good example of how even, even as late as the 5th century, um, lots of churches did not acknowledge, um, even in the Western church. As late as the 6th century, there were, there were um, metropolitans in Italy that did not report to the Pope of Rome. So there were dioceses in Italy that were, that were independent of Rome. Uh, this was a gradual process that happened over time. Um, but we're going to stop there, and we're going to take up a little bit more of how the theory developed. We're going to look at some of the later popes. We're going to look at the fascinating story, fascinating to me, of the donation of Constantine and the Isidorian Decretals. And then we'll look at that, that statement that Jesus made, I, I name you Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and I give you the keys of the kingdom, and talk about various theories of the interpretation of that, because this whole question hinges on that debate. So, any questions or other thoughts? I think it's a good lesson to us of how pride, even in good things, can become deadly. Rome fell into pride. Rome was a good church. <laughs> Rome was a solid, orthodox, godly church. And they fell into pride over that. And that was their downfall. Oh. All right. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your blessings. Thank you for uh, preserving your church and growing and strengthening your church. Uh, we thank you for those uh, early uh, leaders of the Church of Rome that were so godly and so uh, uh, effective in your grace and advancing the kingdom of God. Um, and we thank you even for the later apostasy of the later fall um, from which we learned so much um, about reliance on you and on humility and on... Uh, not, following, um, uh, not following those same errors ourselves, Lord. Um, we thank you and bless you for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.